It is a, a book about a bunch of different judges, so not courtroom judges, but rather military captains or, or tribal chiefs that God is using to rescue his people. So in the biblical storyline, God uh, creates a people through Abraham. They become a great, great nation. They go into Egypt because of a famine. They're enslaved uh, by Pharaoh and are imprisoned and oppressed. God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, makes them into a nation, takes them to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, covenants with them, makes them his people, and then they're about to go into this land that he has promised them, this land of protection and prosperity with him as their king. And that's where the book of Judges shows up. There is no king right now, and like Peter said, God is their king, and they keep getting into trouble because they're not listening to God. They're, they're worshiping false idols. They're doing evil things. Bad nations around them come and defeat them and oppress them and, and hurt them in huge ways. God raises up one of these judges, and then there is victory, and then peace for a while, and usually that judge dies, and then right away again, God's people are back again, worshiping false gods, doing evil things, and this downward cycle uh, continues over and over and over again. Today we're going to look at Gideon. So this is the third week looking at this particular judge. Week one was pretty good. Week two, not so bad. Week three, really bad. So we're going to see Gideon's fall. So he was a judge that was just used by God to rescue God's people out of the worst, uh, the worst circumstance, the worst depression, the worst uh, sense of hopelessness that they've had in this whole book so far. So Gideon, up to this point, really seems like a really great character. Seems like a judge that maybe God should make king because uh, Israel's been rescued out of such horrible circumstances. But that's not what we're going to see today. We're going to see Gideon's fall. We're going to see his fall from grace. We're going to see his, his sin uh, not only hurt himself, but hurt all the people that he's responsible for, all the people that he is leading. And in Gideon's fall that we're going to see today in, in Judges 8, there's going to be a warning for us, actually lots of warnings for us, as we see our own reality pictured in a group of people, but, but still a great uh, picture of who we are as humanity, who we are as, as people. And we're going to look into the, the human condition as we look at a microcosm of that, the, the nation of Israel with Gideon as their leader. And we're also going to see uh, temptations that we all the time face, just like Gideon and, and the characters in today's story. So, as we set this up, uh, today's sermon is going to be a big downer. The first seven-eighths of it, big downer. We're going to just gonna see this downward spiral of what sin and depravity and temptation and... Uh, pride and arrogance and revenge, uh, what, it, what it leads to. Yet, at the very end, we're going to see some great hope. So hang on till the very end, especially if you uh, like happy endings. Or if you like tragedies, you'll like the first seven-eighths of this sermon. All right, we're going to read from Judges 8. We're actually going to start just a few verses in because it's a long chapter. We have a lot to read. So we're going to start in uh, verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna. Anyone have any kids soon? Got some fun baby names there for you. Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. From there they went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace... I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. 
And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle by the ascents of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hands of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collar that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and the maid Baal beareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. It's a really sad passage, like we said, this, this downward spiral of Gideon and his leadership and his life and what happens to the nation of Israel. So if you remember that what happened the past few weeks, despite Gideon being used by God in powerful, salvific-type ways, so if you remember, Gideon took just 300 men and defeated, like we saw in the beginning of 8, an army that was uncountable, an army over 100 thousand people. Despite that just happening, Gideon soon forget who actually empowered him to do this. Who actually won the battle? Who guided him? And rather thinks it's himself. He forgets God. Just two chapters ago in, in this story, we see uh, in Judges 6, 16, and the Lord said to Gideon, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And just a little bit later in, in Judges 6, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the men came and, and followed him and fought. So again and again, we as the reader have been told, and, and Gideon as well, face to face, has been reminded, you are weak, you are not brilliant, yet I'm going to use you, I'm going to empower you, I'm going to fight through you. And even if you kind of forget and get confused, 
we're going to do this crazy thing where 300 men are going to defeat an army of 100,000 by God actually doing it himself. But Gideon forgets this. And out of Gideon's forgetfulness, we see his great anger at not being respected and given glory by these two, or by these leaders of this city. So Gideon's still leading these 300 men. The the Midianites have been hugely defeated, 100,000 soldiers destroyed, and they've kind of fleed away, and Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing them to, to finish off the battle. And as they're exhausted and pursuing you see they, they come to these two different cities. And it doesn't say it here, but we know that these two cities, they're not Midianite cities. They're actually, they're actually Gideon's people. They're actually uh, groups of, of, of Israelites at these two cities. And Gideon shows up and he says, we're starving, we need food. We need drink, we need rest. And both of these cities say, yeah, sorry about that. And although we can kind of understand why the, the leaders of these cities say this, because if they give Gideon uh, food and rest and water, and then they go, don't go and defeat Midian or, or finish them off, they know soon that Midian will come back and, and destroy them for helping their enemies. So we can kind of understand why they would do it, yet they are Israelites. They did just see God work in such a miraculous way to bring salvation. And how does Gideon respond? Again, he forgets God and focuses on himself, and essentially asks, how dare these people not serve me in my army? As we go through this passage today, I want you to notice just how absent the Lord is. How absent Gideon and God's people are actually thinking about and remembering who won this battle for them, and who is their God, and who is their king. And despite him being very absent from this chapter, we'll see his, his sovereignty and his plan still be working behind the scenes here. But Gideon is puffed up. He's arrogant. And instead of leading sacrificially, and for the good of those he's leading, including the people of these two towns, which is actually the definition of godly leadership, biblical leadership is leading sacrificially and for the sake of those that you're leading. Out of that, his pride brings about great suffering and pain for these people that he's actually supposed to be rescuing and even though as we're as we're reading this today we're probably thinking Gideon seriously who is this guy we're probably disgusted by his forgetfulness his arrogance his violence his revenge he's still so much like us right we so often forget that that our power our success our influence whether it's in school or in parenting or on the sports field or in our careers or even in our ministry, how often do we forget that success in those areas are all given to us by God? They're gifts given to us through the power of of the Holy Spirit. And when others don't respect us and we don't get the thanks or the acknowledgement or the, the accolades or the grades or the promotions or the awards that we think we deserve, we default to act just like Gideon, right? So just like Gideon, Remembering the who behind our success, wherever in our lives. The who behind our accomplishments will keep us from sinning in ways like Gideon. Keep us from sinful anger that leads us to more sin, to more hurting, and to more destruction. We have to remember, too, is that this is all coming out of victory, right? This is not Gideon getting defeated and going through great pain and suffering. Brother, this is coming out of great victory, miraculous victory a victory this nation hasn't seen for for generations and generations and generations. Gideon is forgetting God after great salvation, after great success and a great defeat of evil and a great use of the Spirit. And yet he still falls deeply into sin. Tim Keller commenting on this, he writes, we need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail. But we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Success can be great, definitely can be great. And God does give it to us as a gift. But it also can be a a great temptation for us to foolishly forget our utter need and dependence for God. And just moments after, after Gideon's victory in this great battle that 
happened in, in last week's chapter, the defeat of a crippling and devastating evil that left Israel hopeless for years and years and years. Gideon falls into this, this personal revenge and cruelty towards these kings. Once he has captured these two kings, the, the, the leaders of Midian, the people that were oppressing and, and hurting uh, Israel, when he captures these two kings, we found out that these two kings have actually killed Gideon's brothers. And then when Gideon says, son, you go kill them, they, they mock his masculinity and say, seriously, you can't kill us yourself? We killed your brothers. You're going to have your, your young son do this? That's fearful. Back to verse 19. And he, Gideon, said, they were my brothers, these men that the kings killed, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jethro, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. So Gideon responds not with justice, rather with revenge and cruelty and murder, looking nothing like the spirit-empowered, God-called rescuer and judge that we saw just a chapter ago. So because, I mean, this, could, this can be for everyone especially, right? It works, but maybe especially for men because Gideon's a man here. I wanted to stop and ask us this question. So for everyone, but especially men, just like Gideon, what happens when you're disrespected? How do you respond? What happens when uh, your masculinity is mocked or questioned by others? Like Gideon, do we lash out with violence, with anger, with cruelty and revenge, just like Gideon? Or do we allow the Spirit to control us and instead respond like our Savior, who also went through the exact same stuff, yet chose not to use his power nor demand his rights, who was incredibly powerful and even more unjustly treated and disrespected than Gideon? So do we let our anger and our, and our self-righteousness take over? Or do we submit to the Holy Spirit in our lives and through that mirror our Savior who protected those who were weaker than themselves, who turned the other cheek, who intentionally lost arguments and shut his mouth, who gave up his, not only his wants, but gave up his rights for others, who absorbed injustice against us, and do we trust in our identity as being followers of him, being empowered by his spirit? Do we trust in that identity rather than our accomplishments, our strengths, our titles, or our respect by others? Gideon's response to disrespect and mocking actually led to more destruction and death and evil, while Christ's response to disrespect and mocking and injustice leads to life, healing, and reconciliation. Gideon's downward spiral continues, so he forgets his past. He forgets who's behind his success and his victory and his calling and his power. He forgets God, and then he delivers and, 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 and uh, leads God's people into sin. And we begin to see this, this downward spiral of his leadership. The first way that he does this is, is by leading as a false king. So after this great victory, the people rise up and they say, hey, you saved us, which should be a big red flag for us right away, right? If we read the first two chapters or just know anything about the Bible or just the reality of this war, right? 300 versus 120,000. Just ridiculous to say, Gideon, you won this war. But they say that. Gideon, you run, won this war. We want to make you our king. I want to make your son king after that and your grandson the king after that. Again, remember, look how absent Israel's remembrance of the Lord is here. But Gideon actually rightfully responds. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He reminds Israel correctly that they already have a God. They already have a king, much greater than all the other surrounding nations. They have a true, real, and powerful king who is God, who will lead and protect them 
in ways unlike any earthly king can. Yet, just the next verse after Gideon says, no, don't make me king. God is your king, not me. He lives like a king. In the next verse, he begins to assume the role of an ancient king. He asks for gold as a financial reward for the, the deliverance, for the salvation that he has just won for them. And then he takes the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the, the Midianite kings and puts it on himself. So very soon he looks, literally looks, exactly like a king. He takes a harem of women, just like a king of the day would have done. And he even names his son Abimelech, which literally means, my daddy's the king. So what happened to Gideon? Where did he go wrong here? How did he go from spirit-empowered, called by God, said Jesus face-to-face, rescuer of Israel, seeing miracles, to a guy who thinks that he's pretty big stuff. A guy thinks that people should respect him or else they're going to get publicly whipped and, and scratched by thorns and, and, and murdered if they dare tempt him, tempt him. Someone who's even taking over God's role as king and then leading God's people away from the God that just saved them into idolatry and infidelity. So what happened to Gideon here? Again, Tim Keller in his commentary on, on Judges right, writes, quite simply, he knew something intellectually which had not really gripped his heart. There was a huge growing gap between what he believed about God in his heart and the motives of his heart and the actions of his hands. Gideon's mistake was a failure to live out what he knew to be true. So there's this huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, which might seem like a dust statement, but it's, but it's uh, huge in this story right here. It's huge in our lives. We look all throughout the Bible. We see characters who have great head knowledge. Think about the demons. The book of James, the New Testament says, they understand that Jesus died on the cross. They know it was true. They're not denying that it really happened. Yet they're not saved. Some of Jesus' biggest enemies, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, right? They had uh, parts or, or the whole Old Testament memorized. So lots of head knowledge, but then they rejected God when he showed up as well. So there's a huge difference between knowing something in our heads, saying, yeah, the Bible is true. Yeah, Jesus was God. Yeah, Jesus did rise from the grave. A huge difference between knowing something in our heads, something intellectually, and letting the truth move to our hearts, to our actions, to lives changed, to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, for salvation, for our new identity, for righteousness. As I was writing this, uh, this scene came into my head. So there's this scene where Aladdin speaks to Jasmine, so you can't see it here, but right now he's on the magic carpet, and he says, do you trust me? Right? There's a big difference between looking at a guy riding on a magical flying carpet and saying, yes, I, I agree that that works, that you're not falling, that the carpet's actually flying. There's a huge difference from that and actually grabbing Aladdin's hand and, and, and hopping up on this magic carpet and being taken for a ride and seeing a whole new world. So we must always be asking ourselves, and each other. Is this just head knowledge to us? Are we just agreeing with whatever our community group leader is saying or whatever our pastor is saying or whatever the Bible says? Or are we really trusting in it? Are we letting those gospel truths actually change us and influence us rather than just inform us and, and puff us up in knowledge? Are we just saying, wow, that magic carpet looks great? Or are we actually getting on it? And as a false king, Gideon's not just leading them into the ground, leading them to destruction, but he's also at living and acting as a false high priest. So not only is Gideon leading them just by military might and by, by being the leader of this group of people, but he's also leading them spiritually and, again, leading them into the ground, leading them towards great destruction. 
So at this time in history, there was no temple yet. And so there was something called the tabernacle. So just think the temple, but a tent. Because they were, they were moving at this time. The temple hadn't yet been built. And this was the, the, the physical embodiment of, of uh, God and, and his presence. And so the way people worshipped God was, was going to the tabernacle. And there, there was one man, a high priest, a main priest who led God's people spiritually. And probably didn't pick up on this, or, or maybe you did. Maybe you're a lot smarter than I, but I did not, and I did not know what uh, ephod was. But when Gideon gets this victory, and then he says, no, I'm not going to be your king. The Lord is going to be your king. But if you want to give me some of your gold, I'll definitely take your gold. Because remember, I did just rescue you from the worst oppression you've ever seen. So he places out this, this blanket, and people fill it with gold. And what does he do with that gold? is he actually builds this thing called an ephod. And if you didn't know what that was, I didn't either. It's, it's this priestly uh, garment worn by the one and only high priest in the tabernacle, so in this temple-like location, which signifies the true dwelling place of God. So what Gideon here is doing, he's essentially wanting Israel to come to him for guidance, wanting to come to him for influence, and to speak on half of God himself, rather than going to the true tabernacle and go through the true high priest, the way that God has designed it. We read in verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it, of all this gold he received for the victory, and he put it in his city, so not the place that it was supposed to be, but in his own city, in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So in today's passage, we see this great fall by one of Israel's greatest heroes up to this point. Through his great faith in the Lord, we saw it earlier in this story, in the past few weeks, through his great faith in the Lord and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, God brought great deliverance, great redemption, great salvation to his people through Gideon. And when Gideon forgot that, when Gideon forgot who and called him, who had called him who empowered him and when his head knowledge did not transfer to heart knowledge he led god's people into deep deep destruction even despite there was no oppressors in the land so it says here that they had peace for 40 years and right next to it it says and they hoard themselves after false gods so there was there wasn't oppression by other nations Israel's new enemy wasn't Midian or Egypt or the Philistines, but rather their own sinful hearts. This description of Gideon's rule ends with some of the strongest language in the Bible. Verse 27 again. And Gideon made an ephod of it and uh, put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, the false gods, the idols, and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all of their enemies on every side. So back up again in the story just a little bit, like, like we said. So when God saved his people, when he saved them out of slavery and oppression in Egypt, he made them into a nation, and rather than making a contract with them, something like Santa Claus, where he says, if and only if you're good, then I'll give you gifts. Otherwise, you're getting coal. Right? Rather than a contract with them, he made a covenant with them. So when you think of the word covenant, think of marriage. We call marriage, or marriage is a covenant. We, we, we call it that right now. So unlike a contract, God is promising to be faithful to his people. He's promising to protect them. He's promising to provide for them. And not only does this covenant look like a marriage, not only does God make vows to his people, also throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself a spiritual husband and calls Israel, his people, he calls them his bride, his wife, and his queen. So when Israel rejects the Lord, when Israel rejects his love, his rule, his covenant, when they worship false gods, when they commit idolatry, 
They're not just sinning, which they are. But they're not just sinning, but they're being spiritually unfaithful to their husband. And multiple times here in Judges, we've seen this strong language uh, describing their worshiping idols. Described as whoring themselves after these false gods. They're intentionally and willfully prostituting themselves to powerless, fake, and even and evil idols. And this vulgar and explicit language is supposed to shock us, right? It's supposed to offend us. It's, this, it's, it's supposed to make us feel like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable now reading this, or I don't want to think about it like that. And that's the point. This language is supposed to help us see the heartache that it's causing the Lord, who is truly the innocent party here, truly the loving spouse that is getting sinned against. Now before we move on, we're going to look at one other part of the Bible that uses this exact same language as, as Judges 8 and gives us an even fuller understanding of what's going on and hope, whereas Judges 8 does not end with any hope at all. But before we get to that, an important side note I want all of us to hear before we move on. Words are really powerful. Words are really powerful. The Bible speaks about this. And many words come with, with baggage on top of their literal meaning, meanings. So we want to, before we move forward, we want to be really clear here. We're going to use some loaded, powerful, explicit words, the words prostitute and whore, not just, not just to get a reaction, not just to shock, but because the Bible uses these words. And we see them come up a number of times in Judges, and we're going to see these exact same words used again in uh, the book of Ezekiel that we're going to look at in just a second. But we also want to be clear what the Bible is not saying. Again, because our words just come with so much baggage. And the people in our pasts or in our lives or in media have used these words to mean things that the Bible's not trying to mean here. So many of you have maybe heard these words of, of, of prostitute or whore used against you in some type of derogatory or, or shaming way. And people often use these two words as, as slang to dehumanize people, to make them feel dirty and shameful and unworthy and horrible. And when we see these words used in the Bible, hear me out here, God's not trying to shame us in the same way that an abusive boyfriend or husband or, or leader is trying to shame the people that he's calling a slut or a whore or a prostitute. But God is using these words and using them especially as verbs, saying this is how you are acting. Reminding us of the very reality that we all have this deep propensity to be unfaithful to God. This deep propensity in our hearts, in our nature, to be unfaithful to God. To cheat on our spiritual husband. To commit spiritual infidelity. And not only that, but to be very clear, God is describing not just Israel here, but all of human condition. Men and women. Me and you. And he's using this explicit language to shock us, all of us, out of our apathy towards spiritual adultery. Out of apathy of not caring that we've cheated in our marriage towards God, those of us who are believers here. Some translations use, uh, actually translate this word whore to prostitutes. If you're reading a, a different translation, you maybe uh, see that here. So as we uh, go over these words. We're going to define these words. We just want to be super clear and careful what the Bible is saying and what it's not. So when we see this word whore being used in Judges and, and soon in Ezekiel, it's not a, de a derogatory term or a slang used by God to just bring shame, but rather this is a person, someone who is intentionally embracing their sinful sexual passions and deliberately committing adultery. So how it's used here in the story these, these words are important. It's intentional and deliberate. And with the word prostitute, that again could be translated horror here in Judges, and we're going to see it again in Ezekiel 16. To be clear here, in, in, the, in the majority of modern prostitution right now in our world, the woman is forced or coerced into it and is a victim. But the way it's used here in Judges and in Ezekiel 16, it's not like this at all. In fact, the way it's used or how this person is described, how we are described, is quite the opposite. In today's passage, 
this word prostitute is used quite unlike much of what modern prostitution is today. So the way that it's used in Judges and in Ezekiel can be described like this. Again, deliberately giving oneself sexually to another, not coerced, not forced, or for money, but rather intentional, unprovoked, wanton sex. We're actually going to see here in Ezekiel, this next passage we're going to look at, that she does not only ask for money, but rather she pays money in order to be with her sexual partners. So this metaphor of God's people committing adultery against the Lord, it's one of the most powerful and the most explicit in the Bible. And throughout Israel's history, they've gone through these cycles where they are, are pursued and protected and loved and reminded of the vows that God has for them. Reminded that they have a perfect heavenly husband who has chosen them, who has rescued them, who has loved them, provided for them, protected them, and given them a new identity. But what happens in Gideon's day continues to happen. And later on in the story, happens again. And God raises up a prophet named Ezekiel to speak against his people's adultery, symbolically by telling a story of a woman and a king, speaking in great deal and great detail of this unfaithfulness. It's a really powerful uh, description and story and incredibly long, so I'm going to summarize it, but if you want to, it's, uh, you can go back and read it later this week, Ezekiel 16. And again, before we jump into this, this is symbolic. So there's not, this woman is not an actual person, but rather this woman is us. This is us in our sinful nature. This is us in our desire to rebel against God and, and to be unfaithful and to pursue idols and other things. So it might be hard uh, not to try and to think of this in terms of being a real person, but rather when we hear this woman be talked about, think us. Think the people of God rebelling against God. Think about us in our, in our fallen human condition apart from God. So instead of, of, of thinking this as a person, let the scandal of this story help you to see God's incredible love, protection, provision, and patience and love for his people, for you and I. So this story starts off by describing an unwanted, discarded girl who is hopeless. She's naked and full of shame. So again, remember, the, the woman in this story who is about to become queen is Israel, or us in our sin, men and women, apart from faith in Christ. And the king in this story is God. So God sees this woman, this broken, unwanted, discarded, hopeless woman, and he sees her. He chooses her. He rescues her from death. He cleans the blood off her. He covers her nakedness and shame, and he vows to her. He covenants with her. He marries her. And he is the king. And he clothes her with the finest clothing and garments and linens that he has. The best of royal clothing. And he gives, it, gives her incredible jewelry and crowns her with a crown. He protects her. He provides for her. He gives her the greatest of all the food and drink that he has in his palace. He protects her. And he gives her a new identity. No longer is she unwanted, is she discarded. No longer is she full of shame or worthless. But now her new identity is desired, is renewed, is a redeemed and beautiful queen. And although this seems kind of like a Disney princess story, it doesn't end here. Despite the rags to riches, unwanted to wanted, hopeless to flourishing story that we see, the queen responds in unfaithfulness. And Ezekiel is telling the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. It's not described as, as though some evil yet really handsome and charming uh, other prince shows up and kind of lures her away. But rather, the way Ezekiel describes us in our sin is that we intentionally choose infidelity. The queen desires adultery. She wants to cheat on her husband. And Ezekiel uses the same language as judges. She whores herself after other lovers. She prostitutes herself again and again and again. She forgets the one who has rescued her and who loves her. All of these things, echoes of, of Judges 8. And Ezekiel continues to make it clear that this is deliberate. The queen's not forced. 
She's not coerced. Her prostitution isn't in money, isn't for money. And in fact, she actually takes these good gifts, this money, this wealth, this jewelry that's been given to her by the king and gives it to those she's cheating with. This is intentionally unprovoked, repeated, wanton sexual sin. And like any husband, it breaks the heart of, of the king. It breaks the heart of God. And she also takes the good gifts from her husband and makes them into idols to worship. Just like Gideon takes the praise of the people and the wealth that he receives from the victory to make idols that the people worship after instead of God. The queen also takes the children that she's born with the king and she sacrifices those children to the idols, slaughtering them and burning them on these altars to demonic false gods. This too echoes what Gideon's doing. He allows the people that God has given him authority over and he leads them to worshiping false gods, just like Baal, who just like in Ezekiel 16, he's an, even, an evil false god, an, even, an evil idol that requires child sacrifice to appease him. So right now, wow, right? We're sick to our stomach. We're trying not to think about this. We're trying to just let this be words and not like pictures in our heads or to really think about what this means. What evil and depravity and injustice against the children, injustice against the king. And remember, this graphic language is intentional. God put it in the Bible. He wants us to know this. God, through Judges and Ezekiel, wants us to understand, had knowledge, but he also wants us to feel what our rebellion against him is like. The deep, evil sin that we've done against our God. And again, remember, the queen is not just a picture of ancient Israel, but it's a, it's a picture of all of us in our sin, in a rebellion against God. And God finally responds to his queen. For thus says the Lord, Ezekiel 16, 59, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, you who have despised my vows towards you, you have who have broke the covenant of marriage between me and you. But God doesn't stop there. Nor does he list the punishments that they should receive. Verse 60, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord and you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord. He responds with, yet, even though you forgot our vows, our marriage, I will remember. Yet, even though you were unfaithful, I will be faithful. Forever. Not just for a few more years, but forever. An everlasting covenant. That shame that you have, I'll completely remove it. I know what you did. I'm not just forgetting about it. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But I know it and I'll completely remove it when I atone for it, when I pay for your sins. The Gospel Transformation Bible comments on this, this great word, yet. So great, great, great sin. God says, I'm going to step in and do something, and then we have this word, yet. They write, the word, yet, in verse 60, defibrillates our heart with gospel grace. Following everything God has said to this point in the book, the word yet is not a rational word. It's not logical. It does not come because of a considered argument, but rather solely and completely because of love. There's no reason for God to save and restore Israel. No, way, no reason for him to establish his covenant into eternity with them. And yet he does so anyway. The same is true of the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Not one of us deserves God's love. Rather, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that while we were this queen, prostituting ourselves towards other false gods, doing unspeakable evil, that is when Jesus died for us. 
Not when we were a beautiful queen with, with great adornment and, 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 and beauty, but when we were our worst, when we had done our worst, that is when Christ died for us. Our entire eternity rests on the fact that God, in an inexplicable and astonishing love for us, he looked at our sin and said, yet. Gloria Furman also writes about this. She says, God's irresistible grace binds our wandering hearts to him and frees us to love him back. What binds us to Christ, what makes us love him back, is not law. It's not words saying, you better love God because he's God and he could squash you. Or because being a good person means you follow these commandments, these rules that say love God. That doesn't really work, right? Or maybe the action does, but it doesn't change our heart. But when we view God's irresistible grace, like we saw in Ezekiel 16, it binds our wandering hearts to him and helps us to love him back. That's the way we love God. Not through law, not through commandment, not through do this or else, not through Santa Claus, but through a marriage, through love. A few things as we leave here today. What does this mean for us today? First, see the depth and the evil of our sin. In, in, a, in a quite affluent and, and successful country that we live in, it can be hard to see the depth and the evil of our own sin. Right? We're, we don't live in an age of like, like judges where people are just dying everywhere and being murdered and starving to death, literally right outside our doors. So this can be hard for us. So God gives us uh, chapters in the Bible like Ezekiel 16 that remind us of your sin is really bad. Your sin is infidelity. Your sin is prostitution. Your sin is cheating. We forget our God and Savior, just like Gideon in this passage. After Jesus shows up to Gideon in the flesh, after he empowers him, after he miraculously defeats 100,000 soldiers with 300 men, he forgets God. And we do this all the time. Just like the queen who forgets the great love, forgiveness, protection, and faithfulness of the king. We don't only forget God, but we arrogantly then worship his gifts rather than him. Just like Gideon and Israel, we worship the good things he gives us instead of him, himself. The one gift giver, the one that the gifts are supposed to point to. They worshiped an idol made out of the reward of victory while we worshiped success or family or grades or respect or relationships or comfort rather than the gift giver, rather than what all those things are supposed to point towards. In the New Testament, Titus 3 describes our state apart from Christ, summarizes this bad news of our sinful nature, of who we are apart from, from Jesus Titus 3.3 3 says, For we ourselves were once, so writing to Christians saying, this is who we are apart from, from Christ. This is the bad news. Good news is coming, right? But this is the bad news first. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Right? Echoes of Judges 8 and, and Ezekiel 16. Yet, the story does not end there. The, doesn't, the story doesn't just end with the evil and the depravity of our sin within us. But that passage continues. And we see the incredible, scandalous grace of the love of God that we see, not in Judges 8, but later on in the story in Ezekiel 16 and something that's promised to those who believe in, in the Messiah who comes, in, in Jesus Christ. This Titus passage continues. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And then finally, see our sin, see the incredible, scandalous way that he forgives us and loves us still when we were unlovable and unfaithful to him. And then out of that, after we put our trust in Jesus Christ's death and when it accomplishes that number two, 
then out of this, out of this new identity as a forgiven, restored queen of, of the spiritual king, out of this new identity, live lives of worship and deep compassion, empathy, and love towards others. So the order is paramount, right? We can't start with number one, Christian, go and do number three. That's the first thing to do. We don't. We start by seeing our sin. And then we see how God responds to that sin. And then out of that, we know we have a new identity that we can't help by the Spirit empowering us. We just can't help but respond like this. Out of our new identity, being reminded that God showed deep compassion, empathy, and love towards us when we were evil. Then we can live like that towards others. Jen Wilkin writes, If I am fully known and not rejected by God, think Ezekiel 16 again. The king fully knew what what the queen was doing, yet not rejected, yet welcomed back, yet forgiven. If I am fully known and not rejected by God, Christian, for you here today, that's your identity. If that's true about me, then how much more ought I to extend grace to my neighbor, who I know only in part? So in Christ, we can be fully known by God and accepted, just like the queen. God knows our pasts, our hearts, our motives, our sinful desires, yet he still loves us, pursues us, forgives us through Christ. And then out of that, we can now share that compassion, that empathy and love towards others. Christians should be the most sympathetic and compassionate and loving people out there because that's our story, because we were once that. We too, in our sin, were shameful, broken, and without hope, yet God chose us. He welcomed us to himself in Christ. He clothed our shame and gave us hope. We too have been unfaithful to our God and Savior, whoring ourselves to other false gods over and over and over again, yet we're still forgiven, received, cleaned up by him, and given an eternal vow that we will never that he will never leave us again or forsake us. So let us live out of this new identity. And if that that is not your identity yet here today, this is what God offers you today. He offers you to see your sin, to see the great love and forgiveness that he has for you, and to receive a new identity, to be welcomed back by the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, what you offer to us, for your patience and kindness and forgiveness that you have towards us. And for this new identity you give us, God, we pray we would live out of that identity, that we would live as people who are fully known and fully loved and accepted through Jesus Christ. Hard stuff, really hard stuff today, but God, we thank you that Judges 8 does not end the Bible, that there is Ezekiel 16, there is a Titus 3, there is a death and resurrection of a Messiah on our behalf that wins us back to the King pray this in your beautiful and powerful and forgiving and saving name, Jesus. Amen.